You've probably heard the Korean War referred to as an unfinished conflict. But that's not just a reference to the frozen war on the peninsula. The sudden outbreak of war in 1950 and the rapid movement of the battlefront up and down the peninsula left countless people separated from their family members, children separated from their parents, siblings losing one another in the chaos. The scale of this tragedy was so immense that reunion efforts by South Koreans to reunite with relatives within South Korea would be ongoing well into the 1980s. Of course, reuniting family members separated by the demilitarized zone between the Koreas proved more challenging, arguably increasingly so in the past two decades. Will there ever be closure for these last victims of the Korean War? Our guest today, Woodrow Wilson Center's Sujin Park and Paul Lee from the U.S. Institute of Peace, are intimately familiar with efforts by both governments and non-governmental organizations to reunite divided families. They are joined by Korea Economic Institute's non-resident fellow and former special envoy for North Korea human rights issues, Robert King. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Korean Context. This summer, we're marking the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. It was a bloody and brutal conflict. The consequences are still very much affect the people who live on the Korean Peninsula. The humanitarian consequences during the war were tremendous, but there continue to be humanitarian consequences that we're going to talk about today. And the push up and down the peninsula with armies going in both directions, the tragic consequence was that many families were separated from loved ones. A lot of it happened in the chaos of conflict, and it's been very difficult for families who for the past 70 years have been separated from their loved ones. One of the problems is that these families continue to remain separated. It's been very difficult for them to work out arrangements between North Korea and South Korea, and the primary culprit has been the North Korean government, which has failed to allow contact between its citizens, and particularly citizens of South Korea, or any other place for that matter. And the result is that families that have been divided have largely not been able to see their family. We have two very distinguished panelists with us today who are going to be talking about this issue. Our first panelist is Sojin Park, who is currently a public policy fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Asia program. Ms. Park was deputy spokesperson for the Ministry of Unification from 2011 to 2016. She attended inter-Korean talks seeking to reopen the Kaesong Industrial Complex and to hold reunions of separated family members at Mount Kungang. Before joining the Ministry of Unification, Ms. Park was a journalist and a host of a program dealing with diplomatic issues on Arirang television. She holds a bachelor's degree from Yonsei University and a master's degree from Purdue. I will introduce Paul Lee after we've heard from Sujin Park. Thank you for the kind introduction, Ambassador King. Since you've given us a brief introduction, I'll just give a very brief history of the family reunions that took place. The divided families are among the many painful legacies left by the division of the Korean Peninsula and the ensuing Korean War that has left an open wound for tens of thousands of Koreans who have not been able to reunite 
or even find out the whereabouts of their loved ones for the past 70 years. The outbreak of the war in 1950 with a surprise attack from the North prompted many Koreans to flee south in search of a safe haven from the mayhem. And those who fled their hometowns in the North thinking they would be able to return once the war was over were never able to do so with the Iron Curtain only solidifying the division on the Korean Peninsula to this day. So with millions of Koreans dislocated in the aftermath of the war and suffering the pangs of family division, addressing this humanitarian issue became extremely important for the government in Seoul. In 1971, the South Korean Red Cross began fact-finding surveys on divided families and after over a decade of negotiations with the North, the first ever family unions materialized in 1985 in the form of exchange hometown group visits between Seoul and Pyongyang. But this pair of exchange visits between families in South and North Korea ended as a one-off with no additional reunions for another 15 years. It was only after the first ever inter-Korean summit in 2000 and its June 15 North-South Declaration where the two Korean leaders agreed to exchange visits by separated family members and relatives that formally paved the way for reunion programs to resume and be held on a regular basis. And as many as five reunions were held every year from 2000 to 2007, during the Sunshine Policy era of President Kim Dae-jung and his successor, President Noh Moon-hyun. But frequency of reunions dropped, notably over the next decade, with deteriorating inter-Korean relations during conservative governments in Seoul. Only two rounds of family reunions were held during President Lee Myung-bak and Ak Geun-hye's administrations, respectively, in 2009-2010, and a hiatus of four years until 2014 and 2015. And the latest round of family reunions took place in the summer of 2018 after the April 2018 Panmunjom declaration of the inter-Korean summit between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korean Chairman Kim Jong-un. So far, a total of 21 in-person family reunions and seven video reunions have taken place over the past 20 years, which is far too few to accommodate all the applicants seeking a chance to see their loved ones within their lifetime. Now, the Korean National Red Cross, in cooperation with the Ministry of Unification, runs the Integrated Information System for Separated Families and manages the reunions. Of the more than 133,000 applicants registered in that system, over 82,000 have already passed away with the number of survivors standing at about 51,000 as of the end of June this year. In other words, over 60% of the divided families have already passed, and those remaining are also fast running out of time. In fact, over 85% of the survivors are over the age of 70, and those older than 90 years old account for more than a quarter of the total. So um, they've adopted a family selection process, which is a computer-based lottery that places priority on the elderly and those in search of immediate family members like parents, children, and siblings. In the process of selecting the families for the inter-Korean government-sponsored reunions, 
the divided families in South Korea were able to learn about the status of some 60,000 relatives in the North, which is better than nothing. Yet of fewer than 5,000 families or 24,000 individuals in total have been able to participate in these in-person family reunions held on Korean soil so far. That's roughly 18% of the total applicants. While there have been seven rounds of video reunions for some 550 families at designated government facilities in the mid-2000s, they've been halted for over a decade now. So when we do the math, an annual average of some 820 individuals were able to meet with their divided families over the past 20 years. At this rate, it would take some 60 years for the remaining applicants to get their turn for a reunion and that is if the 70 and 80-something elderly can survive another 60 years. So what are the main obstacles? As you quickly pointed out, Ambassador King, it's North Korea. Why can't they speed up the process or hold more and bigger family unions? The biggest obstacle to resolving this issue is the reluctance on the part of North Korea which has resulted in intermittent reunions capped at 100 divided families from North and South Korea, respectively, even when they do agree to host families. And why is North Korea holding back? There are a number of reasons North Koreans balk at family reunions. First is North Korea takes a political approach to this fundamental humanitarian issue, with South Korea surpassing North Korea in almost all aspects except for nuclear arms, Pyongyang does not have much leverage over Seoul. And well aware that family unions are among the most important inter-Korean projects sought after by the South, North Korea is not inclined to give away this valued bargaining chip very easily. But I think perhaps just as crucial to North Korea is fear of the South Korean influence seeping in through more regular and direct contact between citizens and their relatives from the South. For example, when we even watch these reunions on TV, the South Korean members of the same family appear much wealthier, freer, and even look younger than their peers in the North, which could make North Korea families question why and become envious of their better-off relatives in the South and admire the South Korean ways in comparison. So for these reasons, North Korean authorities not only prep the families with the ideological sessions before the reunions, but also afterwards, so as to drain any capitalistic ideas and influence that they may have come into contact with in the course of participating in these family reunions. What was striking for me when I attended these family reunions in 2014 and 2016 was to notice how the uh, North Korean elderly men came in the same style of suits and hats as if in uniform, and how the many of the women wore traditional Korean dresses that were made of extremely thin material suitable for the summer season when it was in the cold of the winter. So there is also saying that they even provide gifts for these North Korean residents to give to their relatives so that they don't appear lacking. Now, the future outlook, given such reluctance and sensitivity on the part of the North Korean regime, family reunions are hosted only if and when Pyongyang feels the need to use them as a leverage to attain their other objectives. And if history is in any indication, family reunions were held most frequently in times of good and active inter-Korean relations 
with long breaks or no reunions under IC relations. And that's why it's important to um, institutionalize family reunions as a humanitarian issue that does not get swayed by political climate or development. Yet, despite the agreement reached during the two inter-Korean summits held in 2018 to continue family reunions and to restore the family reunion center built in Mount Kumgang Resort, execution seems much, much harder in reality especially when inter-Korean relations are heavily linked to nuclear negotiations and geopolitical conflict of interest in the region. As North Korea has either ignored or refused to resolve this mutual humanitarian issue since the aborted nuclear negotiations with U.S. President Trump in Hanoi in 2019, Seoul's Ministry of Unification earlier this year announced new ways to help the divided families seek private reunions directly with their relatives in the North. That is, by allowing and promoting private family unions in the form of private tours to the North, Mount Tumgang or Kaesong. But with North Korea closing off its borders at the outbreak of the COVID-19 and only further aggravating the inter-Korean relations with aggressive rhetoric and action, most recently demonstrated in the explosion of the symbolic North-South Joint Liaison Office in Kaesong, it's really hard to see Pyongyang becoming forthcoming on this humanitarian issue of family reunions in the near future. Well, I don't want to end on a gloomy note, but I, I would love to see North Korea make a turnaround, but I'll stop here. We don't want you to end on a gloomy <laughs> note, but I'm not sure there's much more happiness that we can come up with. Our second panelist is Paul Lee, who's currently Program Assistant for Youth Programs at the U.S. Institute for Peace here in Washington. Previously, he worked in the China and North Korea program at the Institute for Peace, and he's been a junior fellow at the Asia program of the Carnegie Endowment. In addition to his professional activity, Paul is also the president of Divided Families USA, an NGO non-government organization that focuses on advocating for Korean Americans who are unable to meet with their relatives in the North. He also co-produces the Divided Family podcast, which gives an opportunity for separated families to tell their stories. Paul, we're looking forward to your comments. Thank you so much, Ambassador King. And to Sujin, it's really an honor to be on this panel with both of you who have been really a living part of this history. And I'm especially grateful to both of you for reviewing and providing feedback on an issue brief that I wrote on the issue of Korean American divided families for the National Committee on North Korea, which I hope can serve as a useful resource on this topic. I wanted to share a quick anecdote because I thought it was very relevant. Just this morning, I received a call from a 86-year-old man in Falls Church, Virginia. Mr. Lee, he is a dual citizen of the U.S. and South Korea. He has his mother, older brother, and younger sister in North Korea. His hometown is in Pyongan, a northern province in North Korea. And he has lost contact with them he was able to exchange letters with them until the early 2000s, but he hasn't heard of them since 2003. And he contacted me saying that 
One, he still has hope and has a desire to find out what happened to his family members in North Korea. And two, he wants to share his story so that even after he passes away, other people, other generations will know about his story. But three, he mentioned health concerns and political concerns as well, that he might not be able to travel um, to North Korea, even if there was a reunion program. Now, I'm sharing this story because I think it's very relevant to what I'm about to share with you all. And I hope I can give you three takeaways from my remarks. But the first point I'd like to make is that for some reason, many people know about Korean divided families, but very few people think about this as an American issue. Not just one that the U.S. has at stake, but one that involves American citizens. The second point I'd like to make is we all know that Korean divided families are a very tragic issue. And there are other Korean divided families as well, including more recent North Korean defectors, adoptees, Zainichi Koreans in Japan who are repatriated, abductees. And finally, I would like to challenge everyone and encourage you all to think critically about the current mechanism we have for family reunions with North Korea. Given recent developments, especially with the pandemic, it seems that face-to-face -face reunions, again, as Sujin mentioned, and as the South Korean government acknowledges, might not be the most efficient or effective way at achieving closure. I think the point that I would like to illustrate here in terms of giving an overview of Korean-American divided families is the sheer difficulty of accounting for Korean-American divided families. So unlike South Korea, which keeps very robust statistics through the Ministry of Unification on both the ages, on the whereabouts, on both formal and informal reunion efforts. There's close to no information about Korean-American divided families. And I think there are two main reasons for this, of the difficulty of accounting for them. The first is, as I mentioned, there hasn't been a systematic whole of government or comprehensive effort to trace Korean-American divided families. But on the other hand, there's also a great amount of shame and distrust and cultural and language barriers for a lot of these elderly Korean-American divided families that have deterred them from coming out of the shadows and saying, you know, I'm a Korean-American divided family member. So we see the number 100,000 being thrown around a lot. As we can see from what Sujin mentioned, over 60% of those registered on South Korea's registry have already passed away. And just the 98 people on Divided Family USA's private registry, they're quickly passing away as well. I think it's clear that time is running out for these Korean-American divided families. What really struck me about a government survey from 2018 in South Korea, which showed that 92% of divided family members in South Korea expressed a desire to know what happened to the relatives in North Korea, while 75% expressed interest in participating in a reunion program in North Korea. What makes the issue of Korean-American divided families distinct is that there has not been an official channel for face-to-face -face reunions, but also for reconnecting with their families in North Korea. What I'll talk about now is briefly walk us through some of the grassroots activism and past efforts at reunions, most of which have not ended in a success, unfortunately, but I hope that 
we can glean some takeaways and some opportunities for moving forward, especially given that there are some rumors of the Trump administration looking to have a breakthrough on a summit level with North Korea later this year. As I mentioned, Korean Americans have not had an official pathway for unions, unlike South Korean citizens. So they've had to resort to two primary ways to try to reunite with their families. The first one has been with the North Korean government through informal ways. So there is a North Korean Workers' Party agency called the Association for Overseas Compatriots, which has a connection with a organization in the United States called the Korean American National Coordinating Council, KNCC. And over the past several decades, along with the DPRK mission to the United Nations in New York, which has served as a de facto diplomatic office, some Korean Americans have been able to connect and reunite with their family members. The other method has been through third-party brokers, either ethnic Korean Chinese or Chosonjok, or through brokers in other countries such as Canada. As I mentioned before though, given the shame and a lot of the Cold War mentality and ideology that a lot of these elderly Korean American divided family members have, many of them have been very loath to engage with these either brokers or North Korean government organizations. One, because of the political values, but two, because of the unpredictability and the unreliability. I do think though that since the early 2000s, there has been a strong level of U.S. governmental and grassroots support for U.S. North Korea family reunions. We've seen this in the North Korean Human Rights Act of 2004 and when it was renewed. We've seen this in language about Korean American divided families in the National Defense Authorization Act, in the state foreign operations and related programs. We've seen this most recently in two pieces of legislation which passed the House of Representatives in March of this year. The Divided Families Reunification Act, introduced by Representative Grace Meng, and H.R. 410, introduced by Representative Karen Bass. I do want to point out, though, that the Divided Families Reunification Act, which directs the U.S. government to work with the South Korean government on including Korean Americans' reunions, and directs the Special Envoy for North Korean Human Rights to report on this issue, this position, unfortunately, has been vacant since Ambassador King was in the position, so your presence is sorely missed. I want to point out here that the North Korean government has been a primary challenge, presented obstacles in making reunions a reality, but North Korean government and the officials have expressed interest in the past. It's just that the two sides have rarely aligned at the same time. Perhaps Ambassador King would know because you were intimately involved in these negotiations while you were in the position, but there were instances such as in 2011 when the two sides were very close to making reunions a reality. But again, the issue with U.S. North Korea family reunions is that there is also a lack of a reliable interlocutor. For example, the American Red Cross has been an organization that has been expressed interest in helping, but they don't have the budget or the resources or the mandate to really serve as a reliable interlocutor for family reunions. The last thing I would like to say is 70 years after the outbreak of the Korean War, what can we do now? And it's almost a given that we think that reuniting these families is something that we must do. 
but in some ways I would just like to push back on this fact a little bit. There have been studies, particularly by one scholar named James Foley, who has written an English language book on Korea's divided families, that this system of one-off, one-time reunions with you know, minders from North Korea, with cameras from the media flashing everywhere from several different countries, might actually be counterproductive in achieving closure for divided families. So especially given the health risk concerned with face-to-face -face reunions, I want to keep pushing forward the government-to-government -government mechanisms of reunions. But I also want to encourage all the listeners here, I think, who come from various sectors to think creatively about what we can do to provide closure for these divided families. And I think no matter what field you're in, from foreign policy to grassroots activism to the media, I think there's plenty of things that uh, we can do to support these divided families, including studies of accounting for Korean American divided families, recording their stories in creative ways, and actually disseminating or sharing their information through radio programs or through other means to reach their relatives in North Korea. One question that I'd like to ask, we've talked about this being a an issue of the elderly and it's a rapidly declining problem because these people are, are elderly, they're dying, they're not able to travel. Is there any interest on the part of younger family members who may not have been alive at the time families were separated during the Korean War, but who have an interest in their family and who their relatives are in North Korea? And I would assume that some of those in North Korea would be interested to know what has happened to their families in South Korea. Is there any, any interest or, or any indication of including second generation members of divided families in meetings? Generally speaking, the interest has waned very much over the years and by the year, I think. The younger generation are less interested. And I think there's a, not much of a drive or engine to pursue the separated family reunions as much as in the past decade when the government felt a kind of pressure to do so. But uh, having said that, I do think having attended some of these sessions accompanied by these very young generations because these elderly uh, needed assistance to move. There were some in their 20s as well who accompanied their grandfathers or grandmothers and it was an eye-opening experience for these younger generation to just see for themselves the sorrow and the reality and, and experience it. I think it's important to make people, if not directly, at least indirectly, realize how dire humanitarian issue this is. And it's important, like uh, Paul mentioned, to provide this kind of closure for these uh, people in their lifetime. From a U.S. perspective, it's even more difficult. I think there's definitely a high level of interest among younger Korean Americans, but in terms of actually joining the reunions, if there ever was one, I think the language barrier, the fact that most Korean Americans from the younger generation are not able to converse in Korean with their grandparents, I think that also presents a barrier. Are there ways to bring families together beneath the level of in-person meetings? 
how integrated is North Korea in the international postal system? While there are security concerns, would a Korean Peninsula white pages be helpful in promoting communication between families separated by the DMZ? The divided family member that I mentioned that I spoke to this morning, Mr. Lee, he had mentioned that he was just able to send cards, letters to North Korea until the early 2000s. I'm not sure if the ban on restriction on U.S. passports into actually traveling to North Korea since September 2017 has something to do with mail, but I think he made it clear that now it's very difficult for him, for members of civil society, to actually send mail from the U.S. into North Korea. I know about the Korean side that it is not possible for South Korean citizens to use the postal system to send mail to North Korea because officially not integrated. And there is still, although there are many issues or controversy over the national security law in Korea, it's technically not allowed to communicate with the North Koreans without the permission of the Korean government. In-person meetings in some ways are easier to deal with. The North Koreans are happier in some ways, I think, because they can monitor more carefully what's going on because those meetings have all taken place in North Korea and they've been carefully monitored when they've occurred. The last question that we have, which factor do you think has the greater responsibility for the postponed reunion of the divided families? The United States or and or South Korean efforts or the North Korean attitude? What's your sense in terms of doesn't do a lot of good to place blame, but maybe we can explain why there are problems and where the problems are. Well, like you said, I don't want to put a blame on, you know, one particular actor because you can't tap with only one hand, right? All involved parties are at fault, I think, for failing to help these separated, divided families to unite, at least for once, you know, in their lifetime. I don't want to sound too sided, but for this to happen, I think it's North Korea that has the key because it's a very isolated, secluded state. The key is in North Korea's hands. And although I cannot agree with their ideas, since they have the keys, I think we need to work with them to make this happen without sacrificing too much on our principles, but yet compromising in some ways to help this materialize. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Sujin Park, Paul Lee, Robert King, and to you listeners for tuning in. You can find a link to the issues brief on divided families that Paul Lee drafted for the National Committee on North Korea in the description of this episode. We hope you're enjoying Korean Context. And if you are, please leave us a rating and a comment on your favorite podcasting platform. It helps other people find our podcast. We'll be going on a brief break and coming back in the fall with new content. Hope to see you then.